another proposal uh, this week, either today or tomorrow. We'll hear some more information about it. And so I want to talk about that because it's very important for us to focus on this infrastructure bill because as soon as they can get this passed, then they're going to move on to the second infrastructure bill. And that's the important one for most Americans because that's the one that's going to focus on this human infrastructure. And so you, you, we're talking about the free college education. We're talking about extending the child tax credit, things like that. That's what they're going to focus on with this second infrastructure bill. Uh, so we're going to talk about these two things today. But first off, you guys can do me a favor. Please hit the like button. It does help with the YouTube algorithm. Also, please subscribe to the channel. Hit that little bell notification. That way you'll get notified anytime we put out a video. Okay, so let's get to this first story here. So the mask mandate. So I think people were really excited when they realized if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to abide by this six-foot rule and social distancing and, and all that. Uh, you can pretty much go about your normal life. And so when they lifted this mask mandate, the first thing that I was thinking about is, well, I get to go to a store and I don't have to wear a mask, which is great. But it's not as easy as that. And we're finding out more information. And if, if you look at, uh, look at this article from uh, USA Today, it says, Spring Mask Wars. Stores update COVID-19 policy amid fears of conflict. So you have stores that are starting to lift this, this mask mandate. And, I mean, we have a number of stores that have, that have come out and, and said that you don't have to wear a mask. Walmart, Sam's Club, Costco, uh, Starbucks, Target, CVS. And what they're doing is they're saying this is, this is going to be on the honor system, okay? So <laughs> they're not going to be checking to see if you've been vaccinated at the door. So they're, they're hoping that people that have not been vaccinated will continue to wear a mask. I don't know how that's going to work. Um, we'll just have to, 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 to watch it. But there's no way to prove if someone's been vaccinated or not. Uh, at least they're not enforcing that. So people who are not vaccinated, I'm sure they're going to be going into stores and, and just not wearing a mask, just like everyone else. And so this is raising concern because you do have some stores that are they're, they're trying to look out for the employee. And so some of these stores are saying, we're not going to lift the mask mandate because we're going to protect our employees. And so we're still going to require, if you come into our store, that you wear a mask. And so that's one thing that's a little bit confusing. But if the store's guideline is that you need to wear a mask, well, then everyone in that store needs to wear a mask. And so although you might be upset, you still have to go by what the store says because it's their store. You know, it's private property once you go into that store. However, the confusion is coming when you have some stores that have changed their guidelines to allow you to not have to wear a mask. But in certain areas, in certain counties, in certain cities, you still have to wear a mask because that's the city mandate or the, or the county mandate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Ricky Schroeder, and it's interesting because I haven't heard Ricky Schroeder's name in a long time, but if you guys are old like me, then you, you've seen Silver Spoons, and so you know Ricky Schroeder from Silver Spoons. Uh, he was also on uh, NYPD Blue. I never watched that show. But uh, nonetheless, he goes into a Costco in Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, there's still a mandate. So you still need to wear a mask. And so he heard that Costco said that you don't have to wear a mask anymore. So why are you telling me that I need to wear a mask? But that's because the county guidelines says you need to wear a mask. Okay? And California has already indicated that they will be requiring they're, they're going to keep the same guideline. Now, I don't know if it's all of California or if it's just certain areas, but it looks like the guideline won't be lifted until June 15th. And so there's still some time there. But anyway, uh, Ricky Schroeder, he got on his Facebook, posted a video. I don't have the video to show you guys, but I just thought that was really interesting because now you have store employees, they're having to enforce this, uh, which is, is, is bad in itself where you have to have store employees saying, look, you need to put your mask on, and they're saying, well, no, the guidelines, Costco says that you don't have to wear a mask, so I mean, and I, I'm using Costco, but I'm just saying it, it could be any store that's in an area where there's a mandate, if, if there's a local mandate saying that you need to wear a mask, you still need to wear a mask, uh, so just, uh, it, it's, 
the way that it was was kind of just pushed out there. I mean, it was it was surprising that the CDC came out that quick, uh, and and there really didn't set up a plan to let people know. Okay, this is this is only. I mean, even though you're telling people, okay, well, you still need to check your local guidelines. When people hear that you don't have to wear a mask, and then they see stores coming out and saying you don't have to wear a mask. Of course, they're going to look at that and say, "Well, I don't have to wear a mask." They're not—they're not even thinking about their local uh, and state mandates. Uh, so it's just—it's a, a bunch of confusion right now, and hopefully, they'll be able to come to some type of a resolution because you're going to have people going to these different stores and just uh, upset at the fact that that they heard one thing and now they're being told something else. Uh, so we'll have to follow this story and see where it goes. But who would have known? Like, we're, we've all been waiting for this time for, for so long, and now that it's here, it, it's one of the situations where now it's like they tell you you don't have to wear a mask, but no, really, you do have to wear a mask in certain areas. <laughs> so just crazy. We'll, we'll continue to follow it. All right, now I want to talk about this infrastructure bill. Okay, so this infrastructure bill, this is Reuters here, U.S. Senate Republicans readying new infrastructure proposal, and – their proposal at this at this point is it, it, it's said to be $600 billion. So we know uh, Senator Capito, she came out with a $568 billion proposal, and that was a couple of weeks back. And now they're revamping it, so it's going to be another proposal, and it's said to be around $600 billion. Now, there is a bipartisan group of, of uh, lawmakers that have a proposal that's closer to $1 trillion. So the... The top line number is not what's really going to be the make or break, I think. I think what the make or break is going to be is when we're looking at how is it going to get paid for. Because you have President Biden. President Biden has said, look, we want to raise the corporate tax rate. That's how we're going to pay for it. We're going to raise that corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. And so that's getting some pushback. It's even getting pushback from some Democrats like uh, Senator Joe Manchin. He doesn't want it to be 28%. So they're going to have to drop that number down if they want to at least get all the Democrats on board to move forward. If they if they want to go through reconciliation and not go and not make it bipartisan, they still need Democrats. So they're going to have to probably drop that corporate tax rate down, maybe around 25%. But Republicans, they don't want to do a corporate tax rate increase at all. They want to do user fees. So they want to increase uh, tolls or they want to increase the gas tax or some type of a mileage tax for electric vehicles. That's what they want to do. And so now you have two sides. One side wants to do one thing. The other side wants to do the other thing. And they're both <laughs> saying that they're deal breakers. They're not going to budge either way. Now, I will tell you that if they do user fees, if they raise the, the gas tax, that's going to affect everyone across the board. If they raise a corporate tax rate, that not, won't necessarily affect everyone. And so this is very important for us to watch this because this could potentially affect every American. And we'll be going to the gas pump, paying more at the gas pump, more than what we're paying right now, which the prices have increased uh, because of the, the whole pipeline situation. And so once we get past this, and the hope is that they can get this signed off by July 4th, that is the target date. Once we get past this, then we can move into the human infrastructure. That'll be the second bill. And that is where we're talking about potential, a potential stimulus check. Now, I don't want to get you excited because I think it's highly unlikely at this point for them to add a stimulus check to this. However, it's still on the table. Okay, the White House has indicated, look, we're going to leave that up to, to lawmakers. We're going to leave that up to Congress to decide if they think that we should move forward with another stimulus check. Now, we do have lawmakers that want stimulus checks, okay? They want reoccurring stimulus checks. But at this point, it's not enough. We're talking about between 70 and 74 lawmakers that are for another round of stimulus checks. And so that's just not enough right now. And so they're gonna, it's going to have to gain more support in order for that to happen. But we have the free college tuition. That's something they've been talking about. We're talking about pre-K, two years of pre-K, that's something else that they're talking about. So when it comes to this human infrastructure bill, it can help a lot of people. And so that's what we're, we're, we're focused on. We want to get the infra this infrastructure bill, the first one done, and then move on to the second one. And then also something worth mentioning, the first infrastructure bill will help with the jobs report. We saw a poor jobs report 
last month in April. But you get this infrastructure bill signed, and guess what? That's new jobs, building roads, building bridges, uh, improving broadband, all that stuff. That's more jobs for the American people. And so that will help our economy. That will help when it comes to Social Security because it will add to that trust fund. So there are a lot of things that are on the table right now, and getting this infrastructure bill done mm-hmm. sooner than later is really going to benefit us and get us in the right, move us in the right direction. Uh, so let's hope that that the Republicans come up with something that is that is doable, so they they can still work out the the, the fine details and move forward. But the major focus is going to be how to pay for it, because the top line number it, it could be one trillion dollars, but how to pay for it that's that's what they're going to be focused on. So I want to know what you guys think about this whole situation, so let me know down below. If you like this video, please give me a thumbs up. Please subscribe for more, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Bye. Corey, right now, my wife, she's going to read the letter to you word for word, start to finish, and I will see you on the other side. However, really quickly before we do, in this letter, they have a couple abbreviations. I want to tell you what they mean. Number one, ARP stands for American Rescue Plan. Now, this is the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that was passed back in March that contained the $1,400 stimulus checks. Next abbreviation, UI. That stands for Unemployment Insurance, and they refer to stimulus checks as direct payments. So anytime you hear them talk about direct payments in this video, that is in reference to stimulus checks. So with that being said, Make sure to hit that subscribe button right down below the video if you haven't done so already. And I will catch you again on the other side after Corey reads the letter to you right now. Take it away, Corey. Thanks. Dear President Biden, thank you for your steadfast and decisive leadership during the ongoing public health and economic crisis. The American Rescue Plan, ARP, has provided much-needed relief to millions of Americans. Direct payments and enhanced unemployment insurance, in particular, have served as lifelines to families and workers that have had their lives upended by the pandemic. As we continue to build back better, it is imperative that we work to ensure this critical relief remains available when they need it most. In the American Families Plan, you pledged to work with Congress to automatically adjust the length and amount of unemployment insurance benefits unemployed workers received depending on economic conditions. We welcome this opportunity but urge you to prioritize both automatic unemployment insurance extensions and recurring direct payments tied to economic crypto.com visa card a metal card powered by crypto economic conditions. The pandemic has served as a stark reminder that families and workers need certainty in a crisis. They deserve to know that they can put food on the table and keep a roof over their heads. They should not be at the mercy of constantly shifting legislative timelines and ad hoc solutions. Direct payments and enhanced UI are among the first effective forms of relief available. Not only do they help keep families and workers out of poverty, they act as economic stimulus by increasing spending and supporting jobs. When the CARES Act relief checks ran out, poverty rose and many families and workers experienced spiraling debt. Automatic stabilizers will give families and workers certainty that relief is coming. Families and workers shouldn't have to worry about whether they'll have enough money to pay for essentials in the months ahead as the country continues to fight a global pandemic and recession. Two-thirds of adults reported that the third stimulus check was important to their financial well-being. But nearly as many, 6 in 10, reported that the checks will last less than three months, which is virtually unchanged from January. Mm-hmm. Most people spent relief checks on monthly expenses or essentials such as food, utilities, rent, and mortgage payments. The two forms of payments also worked in tandem. While UI replaces lost income for those out of work, direct payments are crucial for supporting struggling families that fall out of its reach. This includes the millions of workers that do not qualify for UI after having their hours reduced, switching to lower paying jobs, or temporarily leaving the workforce to care for family members. The ARP's $1,400 checks alone will keep 11 million people out of poverty this year 
with UI expansion and other provisions in the bill accounting for the other $5 million. A fourth and fifth check will keep an additional $12 million out of poverty. Combined with the effects of the ARP, direct payments could reduce the number in poverty in 2021 from 44 million to 16 million. Recurring direct payments have widespread support from both the general public and economic experts. Polling shows 65% of Americans support the recurring cash payments for the duration of the pandemic. This includes support from 54% of Republicans and 60% of independents. Economists support this idea too. More than 150 economists recently wrote an open letter supporting automatic stabilizers as part of a strong recovery and warning against repeating the mistakes of the Great Recession when an insufficient response led to unnecessary suffering, particularly among low-income workers. In your joint address to Congress, you laid out a vision to turn crisis into opportunity. Tying recurring direct payments and automatic UI extensions to economic conditions would do just that. We urge you to include both the American Families Plan and are ready to work with enact this. Uh, sorry, we urge you to include both in the American Families Plan and are ready to work with enact this critical relief into law. So there it is, the official letter sent to the president from those six members of the House Ways and Means Committee. Like I said a minute ago, this is now the third letter sent to the president calling on him to include a fourth stimulus check and even monthly recurring payments going forward. This is amazing. I mean, seriously, I've been saying now for a couple weeks now, the likelihood of a fourth stimulus check is getting more and more likely, like literally every single day. This adds so much more power to a fourth stimulus check. These people are incredibly influential. As I said in my video yesterday, we now have 80 members across the House of Representatives, the Senate, and these people here in the House Ways and Means Committee calling on President Biden to include these fourth stimulus checks. California homeowners, if you are sick of paying too much money for electric bills and you have a mirror that looks like this in your home, you can get paid check and monthly recurring payments. This is absolutely amazing. I mean, seriously, the evidence continues to pile up. As you heard right there in the letter, they refer to that group of 150 economists who have also written that open letter calling on additional stimulus payments. What else is really interesting? I love this too. It's almost like they're watching my videos because literally everything they talked about in that video or in that letter is like exactly what I say in my videos. Kind of weird, but not surprising. Here's what they said. They even referred to, I hope you caught this, a fourth and fifth stimulus check. Did you catch that part kind of toward the end a little bit? They talked about even a fifth stimulus check. Yes. So even if there's not recurring payments, you know, it sounds like they're saying, hey, even a fourth and fifth would be pretty nice. So, wow. I mean, could you imagine two more stimulus checks if that actually happened to, to work out? That would be so cool. As they mentioned in this letter, they want to tie these recurring payments to economic conditions as stabilizers. So in other words, like I said yesterday in my video, it'd be like a vending machine, essentially. Basically, when economics uh, conditions permit, they just basically type in E12 on the keypad of the vending machine and out pops a stimulus check, right? Kind of the same thing, pretty fun. Another thing they've mentioned in there too, a couple statistics based on polling. They said 54% of Republicans would be in favor of additional stimulus checks. 60% of independents, and they did not cite a number for Democrats, but we'd have to assume probably like 100% of Democrats would also be in favor of a fourth stimulus check or even recurring payments. Meanwhile, as a whole, the public is in support at about a rate of 65%. So it's nice that they have all this backed up with actual statistics and all this other numbers uh, to kind of back up their point of like, hey, let's pump out some more stimulus checks for the people especially those who are low income or historically hit the hardest when these economic conditions uh, come in. So I don't know. I've said so many times now, I know there's a lot of doubt out there. I know there's a lot of people saying there's not going to be another fourth stimulus check, but seriously, the evidence continues to pile up. As I said in my video yesterday, if there wasn't so much support for a fourth stimulus check and recurring payments, then why would they have sent this letter? They just sent this to him 
over on Monday. I mean, this literally just went over. This isn't something from like three months ago. This just went to the president on Monday. It's dated May 17th. So, I mean, seriously, if, if they thought the economy was doing so well and everybody thought that it's all roses and fields of daisies and butterflies, why are they sending over a letter asking for direct payments? I don't know. You know what I mean? So, I feel like it's pretty much inevitable that there probably will be a fourth stimulus check. I mean, it's looking pretty likely at this point. At the same time, the president and the administration have made it very clear it's basically just up to Congress at this point if they want to add another stimulus check. Well, we know how Congress feels about this, right? We have 80 members now calling on a fourth and those recurring payments. Here's one thing that we don't know. I'm going to be totally honest with you right now. We do not know the amount. We do not know how much it's going to be. We have the proposals that we've seen from those other members in the House and the Senate calling on $2,000 plus 1000 recurring and 2000 recurring. But other than that, in this letter, they did not specify an exact amount of how much the stimulus checks would be or how much the recurring payments would be. So we have no clue how much they're thinking. But as I've said in other videos, I would anticipate a range anywhere between 1200 for the stimulus check um, all the way up to $2,000. As far as recurring, honestly, I feel like the floor on recurring would probably be about $1,000. That's just kind of my opinion based on what I've seen. Either way, for those of you who have requested, here is your letter. I hope this helps you out and answers all your questions. I'm here to help you in any way I can, and I will be back with more videos later today, and uh, I'll catch you in the next one. Thanks, everybody. You're awesome, and I will see you again soon. See you later. Uh, so here's a little chart of the weekly unemployment claims just to show you all uh, the trend. Uh, these numbers can be volatile, so we caution against reading too much into any single report. And obviously, we're looking at trend lines over time. Uh, but the trend is clear. In addition to declining unemployment insurance claims over the president's first three months in office, the economy has created an average of 500,000 new jobs a month, eight times more than the average uh, of the three months prior. Uh, and this is a direct result uh, of President Biden's vision to build our economy from the bottom up and the middle out. With that, Darlene, why don't we kick it off? Thanks, Jen. So on the Middle East, uh, yesterday the White House said the president had uh, spoken to the prime minister, called for a significant de-escalation. The prime minister, in turn, uh, said he was going to push forward with the operation in Gaza. So the question is, you know, where does that leave the president and the administration today? And also, what does what happened yesterday say about his level of influence with the Prime Minister? Well, first let me say, Darlene, that our objective, as we've talked about a bit in here, is to take every step we can uh, through diplomatic channels, through quiet and intensive diplomacy, to bring an end to this conflict. Just to bring us back to a little historical uh, reference here, uh, which I lived through, many of you uh, did as well, back in 2014, uh, the conflict on the ground went on for 51 days. 51 days. Uh, we are at about 10 days now. Now, every day that passes and lives are lost, Palestinian lives, is Israeli lives, is a tragedy. But our approach here and our strategic approach here is to continue to communicate directly, stay closely uh, uh, inter interlocked uh, with the Israelis, with partners on the ground, to do everything we can to bring an end to the conflict. We have seen reports of a move toward a potential ceasefire. That's clearly encouraging. Obviously, we can't get ahead of any agreements that may be brokered. But I would say that to go back to answer your original question there, Darlene, we've had, uh, we've now held more than 80 engagements uh, with senior leaders in Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and across the region, either in person or by phone. Uh, and uh, again, that our view and our approach has been uh, to use our uh, the role of the United States in the relationships uh, with countries on the ground to conduct uh, our efforts quietly and through diplomatic channels. Do you have anything on a call between the president today and uh, LCC and Egypt? Uh, I expect we'll have a readout shortly. I can confirm they had a call. Um, and uh, just to remind you, part of that engagement is a reflection of what we've been talking about a bit in this briefing room, was the important role that a number of countries in the region can play, including the Egyptians, in bringing an end to the conflict. And they have an important role to play in influencing Hamas. Hence, the president had a conversation with him this morning. I expect we'll have a readout shortly. Just one quickly, if I can switch to infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Capito has raised the possibility of using unspent COVID-19 money to pay for infrastructure. Is that something the White House would be open and approach the White House would be open to? 
Well, again, I know there'll be a range of ideas and proposals that will come forward uh, from Senator Capito, from other Republicans and other Democrats as well. Uh, the president's bottom line, as you've heard me say a few times before, is that uh, he does not want to raise taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. We certainly, in that scenario, would need to assess whether these funds are needed and not take them away from uh, fighting the pandemic that we continue to battle every day. Go ahead. Thank you, Jen. A couple topics quickly. First, uh, House Republicans are claiming that they have su uh, significant circumstantial evidence that COVID-19 originated in a lab. Has the White House seen any circumstantial evidence that it did not originate in a lab? Well, I think first I would caution you against disproving a negative there, uh, which is never the responsible approach in our view when it, when it comes to getting to the bottom of the root causes of a pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. I will say that our view continues to be that there needs to be an independent, transparent investigation, uh, and that needs to happen with the cooperation and data provided from the Chinese government. We don't have enough information at this point to make an assessment. And part of the reason some of these lawmakers say that is is because China is not cooperating right now. At what point would President Biden call President Xi and say we've got 587,883 dead Americans. We're just trying to figure out if this happened, if COVID originated in one of your labs, uh, let us in. Well, I would say that we have made that call publicly many times. Uh, we have conveyed that privately, and we have certainly communicated that they were not transparent from the beginning. That's not acceptable. There's an opportunity now in the next stage of this effort for them to be transparent, to participate in an international investigation that can bring a conclusion uh, to the origins and provide information that we, Republicans, Democrats, everyone in this country would love to have access to. On Nord Stream, uh, I know that there's a lot of talk about Nord Stream and Keystone, and I'm just trying to help our uh, help people understand it. Is there? Um, well, yes. Uh, President Biden blocked the Keystone XL pipeline here because he said it would undermine U.S. climate leadership and undercut our ability to urge other countries to take ambitious climate action. So how is he urging other countries to take ambitious climate action if he's letting other countries build Nord Stream 2? First, we're hardly letting any country or other countries build Nord Stream 2. When the president took office, 95% of this pipeline was built. Uh, we've continued to convey that we believe it's a bad, uh, a bad idea, a bad plan, and we have also put in place and taken actions over the last several days to make that clear, in large part because our view is that it's a Russian geopolitical project that threatens European energy security and that of Ukraine and, the East, and eastern flank NATO allies and partners. Uh, hence, there's a geopolitical concern about this pipeline. Uh, and we've taken uh, steps over the last several days to make that clear. So a lot of concerns, and it seemed like there was the ability by the U.S. government to sanction some officials to stop the project at like 95 percent, but you're not doing it. In, in what way were we it, were going to be able to stop a project in another country that's had been built 95 percent? more difficult with the sanctions on some of these officials involved? Well, we have imposed sanctions on four Russian entities, four Russian vessels that engaged in sanctionable activities. We've also imposed sanctions on nine vessels belonging to the Russian government. This is the largest number of entities listed under this act to date. So we have certainly taken significant steps, and we've also made clear in public and private channels our opposition to this plan. And then quickly on Israel, progressives in the House and Senate are hoping to block $735 million worth of weapons to Israel. Would the president ever go along with that? Well, let me first say that the State Department is overseas uh, arms sales uh, and any confirmation of those specific details or notifications that may have gone to Congress. Uh, so I would let them speak to that specific proposal you're asking about. I will say that we've had a long, abiding uh, security and strategic relationship with Israel that has been certainly the case for decades. As a candidate, though, President Biden boasted uh, that he was the only one in the race who had ever brought world leaders together to solve a major problem. There's a major problem in the Middle East right now. So why aren't the leaders and the people there benefiting from all of his foreign policy experience? Do you not count the 80 engagements we've had with countries around the world, including the president's call with the leader of Egypt, the four calls he's had with uh, the Israeli prime minister, and the fact that there have been reports of a ceasefire, well, of I, a movement toward a ceasefire? I would say, do you not count him telling Benjamin Netanyahu, who he says he's known for a long time, uh, to, that he wanted a de-escalation, or that he expected a de-escalation 
by yesterday and Netanyahu just ignoring it? Well, first of all, I would say that we are uh, continuing to work toward that and that uh, we have believed that they are in a position to start winding their operations down. And certainly that is what we've been conveying, and that is what we expect to happen uh, in short order. So, last one. The president says that foreign policy is something he's done his entire life. Mm -hmm. Is it working? I would say uh, that you, if you look at the fact that the American, the global community believes that America is back, has a seat at the table, that we're going to continue to lead in the efforts to get the climate crisis under control, to lead in the efforts in engagement around the world, certainly bringing about an end to this conflict, uh, but also moving toward diplomacy in, uh, as it relates to North Korea uh, and moving toward a place where the United States is uh, returns to the place of being a leader in global forum as we hope to be at NATO, uh, I would say uh, we're certainly uh, working on changing the tide of the last four years. Go ahead. Um. There are decidedly mixed signals coming out of both the Iranians and the Europeans on the chances of a nuclear deal being struck. Can you tell us who's right? Well, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I'm going to take a, assess in that exact term, in that exact phrasing. But I will tell you this: um, we remain uh, engaged uh, as a party in these discussions. Obviously, our discussions, as you know from following this, are uh, through indirect talks through the Europeans. Uh, we continue to believe that our efforts as it relates to uh, bringing an end uh, or, or preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon need to happen through diplomatic channels. Uh, and those talks and engagements are continuing. Uh, we always know from having lived through these negotiations before, there will be bumpy roads, there will be different assessments, but we're continuing to uh, work toward progress. In South Korea, the president's uh, seeking to tap into the U.S. vaccine with supply as part of this visit. How does the White House view such requests from, from advanced economies like South Korea? Is there a higher bar? Um, can you give us some, some, some color on, 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 on those requests? Do you mean, uh, just to, for clarification, so you mean the president of South Korea is looking to tap into sure. our vaccine supply? <laughs> Uh, you know, I certainly, we certainly expect that uh, the leaders will discuss ways the United States can support uh, the South Koreans, South, South, support South Korea in its fight against COVID-19, as well as how we can work together to combat the pandemic around the world. And certainly they will raise a range of issues. I know they've noted that this is one that they intend to raise, which is hence why you're asking me about it. Uh, I will say that as it relates to the vaccine supply that we've announced, we are going to be sharing with the world. We will look at that and we will make decisions, which are still ongoing, uh, with a couple of criteria in mind, how to do it equitably, how to ensure we're reaching uh, parts of the world that need help the most, how to do it in a way that's uh, fair uh, and uh, has a regional balance. Uh, so uh, I don't uh, expect that assessment to be made in advance of tomorrow, uh, but certainly uh, we welcome the opportunity to discuss with them how we can work together to address the global pandemic. One more question on South Korea. Uh, John Kerry and others have called on South Korea to, to double its 2030 targets for carbon cutting emissions, saying it won't go far enough to meet the 2050 goals. Should we expect any movement on that? Should we expect South Korea to, to come a little bit higher on those 2030 goals as far as you well, we are working with South Korea in areas of mutual interest, and certainly uh, climate ambition, addressing the climate crisis that's facing the global community is part of that. Um, sectoral decarbonization and clean energy deployment, we expect will be a part of the discussion. Uh, and uh, we are looking forward to enhancing technical exchanges on economy-wide uh, decarbonization uh, aligned with the global goal to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions. So I certainly expect that addressing the climate crisis what we can do mutually, what steps they can take, perhaps what steps we can take will be part of the discussions, but in terms of what the outcome of it will be tomorrow, I'm not in a position to get ahead of that. Go ahead. Thank you, Jen. Uh, understanding that there have been more than 60 phone calls between 80. The okay, 80 between the administration and regional leaders. Why is the president and vice president now reaching out to their regional counterparts beyond Prime Minister Netanyahu and Abbas? Why not make those some of the first phone calls? Well, the president spoke with uh, Prime Minister Abbas. Just he spoke with him last week already. These conversations. Why is there an addition to that? Well, I would say, Kristen, that these conversations have been happening at a very high level. The Secretary of State, other high-level members of the administration, our National Security Advisor. We've read out many of these calls, not every single one, but we've read out many of them as well. And we have felt that those conversations are constructive, uh, that they have been uh, you, uh, 
helpful partners in working to bring an end to get to the point we're at now where we are working to unwind. We're encouraging the unwinding and the end of the conflict on the ground. And there are moments when it's the right moment for the president to have a call directly with a global leader himself. This is one of those President, could the president have tried to move forward with this ceasefire earlier if he had started reaching out to LCC and his other partners in the region several days ago? We have been very closely aligned, in touch, and working in lockstep with our partners in the region. That is not required, but Kristen, the way diplomacy works, that does not always require a call from a global leader. We have been working in lockstep with them at still a very high level to bring an end to the violence, bring an end to the conflict on the ground. And they share a desire to do exactly that. And there's no question that their relationship, uh, ability to engage with Hamas, ensures that they can play a very powerful and impactful role in this regard. But the reason, let me just say one more, one more point, the reason that we're at this point in terms of the evolving uh, conversations and statements and readouts that we have put out is because the situation on the ground has also evolved and that those readouts reflect that. Let's be very clear about where things stand. Is it the administration's understanding that both sides have now agreed to a ceasefire at this point? We have seen reports uh, of a potential ceasefire, which we certainly see as encouraging, but we are not in a position to get ahead of uh, any agreements that may be brokered. No, but we have certainly seen those reports. That it, those are encouraging. That's certainly what we're encouraging, and we are, what we are working toward. I ask you about the commission to investigate what happened on sure. January sixth. Obviously, the bill passed through the House. It is facing very steep odds. In the Senate, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that, if necessary, she would be open to moving forward with a commission that would only have the support of Democrats. Would the White House support that and have any concerns that the optics of that would ultimately undercut any findings? Well, we're not at that point yet, and we've certainly seen the Speaker's comments. What I will say, since you gave me the opportunity, is that the attack on the Capitol on January 6th was an unprecedented assault on our democracy. It demands a full and independent investigation into what happened. This is not a political issue in the president's view. This is a question of how we secure our democracy and the rule of law. So it's incredibly disappointing to see how many, how many representatives have opted to turn this into a political issue instead of doing what's right for our country and our Constitution. And they still have the opportunity to do the right thing. Would you be open to the possibility of a commission there hasn't been a vote in the Senate yet. Obviously, our hope is that uh, Senate Republicans uh, do the right thing, but policy, partisan politics aside, uh, vote in a way that supports the preservation of our democracy, of our Constitution. Uh, they have the opportunity to do that. If they don't, we'll have, it, we'll have a conversation about it. Finally, there is a lot of skepticism on Capitol Hill that there will, in fact, be um, a bill that they'll pass the George Floyd bill by the anniversary of George Floyd's death. Next week, has the White House accepted that that it is all but an impossibility at this point that it'll pass? And what will the president do on the anniversary? Well, I don't have anything to preview yet uh, in terms of the president's schedule next week. We will certainly mark the anniversary as it was a moment that impacted uh, millions of Americans and certainly the president on a personal level. Um, California homeowners, if you are sick of paying too much money for electric bills and you have a mirror that looks like this in your home. You can get paid today to switch to solar. Uh, I will say, Kristen, that obviously we are in close touch and we, we uh, certainly defer to the uh, expectations of the key negotiators here. And I would note that Senator Booker has indicated that there is good energy to the talks. Senator Scott has said that the key for us is to, making, is to keep making progress. And we certainly support those efforts. The president talked about uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in his joint session speech put a marker down because he feels it's important to be bold, to be ambitious. Uh, and that's exactly uh, what he feels uh, we're hopefully working toward. Sure, go ahead. So yesterday, President Biden told the Prime Minister that he wanted to see significant de-escalation yesterday mm -hmm. and on a path to a ceasefire yesterday. So did he see that significant de-escalation? And does he believe they are on the path to the ceasefire? Well, uh, Caitlin, I, I would say we're not going to give a day-by-day -day grade here uh, of the efforts, but I will say that our objective is to uh, is is to continue to push and encourage uh, all parties on the ground. Israel, of course, the president has spoken to Prime Minister Netanyahu, as you know, four times uh, more than any other world leader, and to start winding their operations down. We have seen reports 
of a potential ceasefire, that is certainly encouraging. Uh, and we believe that they are at the point where they certainly should be positioned to bring an end to this conflict. Uh, but again, as I started off conveying, you know, we're also in a place where uh, we want to bring this to an end as quickly as possible. That is clearly our objective. But we are only on about then 10 or 11 here. When we look back at 2014, that was about 51 days. And we're going to continue to press behind the scenes, press through intensive quiet diplomacy to bring an end to the conflict. I was just wondering, because he did set the deadline of significant de-escalation yesterday. So I'm just wondering if they met that mark uh, to his liking. Again, I'm not going to give a public evaluation uh, from the president of day-by-day -day actions. What I can tell you is that we are continuing to work behind the scenes through these 80 engagements with senior officials to advocate for, to convey that they should be in a position now to start winding their operations down, and that is what we are hopeful to see. Okay. And what are the national security reasons for waiving the sanctions on the company and the CEO behind Nord Stream 2? Uh, well, I know we made this announcement from the State Department just yesterday, uh, and they certainly spoke to this um, from their end. We also put in place a number of sanctions, as you know, uh, on Russian officials uh, and Russians who were engaged uh, in this, um, uh, in the building of Nord Stream 2, to send a clear message that we think that this is a bad deal, that it is a geopolitical um, uh, plan that uh, we feel puts uh, our uh, eastern flank NATO allies and partners and Ukraine uh, at risk. Uh, so that is why we put those in place. Uh, we but what's the reason for waiving the sanctions? Uh, we certainly have an important uh, vital relationship with uh, leaders in Germany and we make a range of uh, decisions through a range of global uh, global factors. Okay. And my last question, uh, about 15 days ago I think, Michael Fanone, who is a DC Metropolitan Police Officer who was there on January the 6th, uh, was beaten, tased, they stole his badge, you know, suffered a lot of trauma. He says that he still is living through. He says he sent you a letter about 15 days ago talking about the emotional anxiety that he still struggles with on a daily basis and saying it's time to fully recognize the actions of the officers on that day. So I was just wondering if the White House has a response to him. I have, I'm happy to check on the status of the letter. Uh, obviously, the president's um, view is that there are a number of officers who lost their lives, paid a tremendous sacrifice uh, for uh, on a day that will uh, be a stain on our democracy for many years to come, and certainly many who survived. Um, uh, this will be a long-lasting trauma. I'd have to check on the letter and the status of that. Thanks, Jen. You've said a couple times that you believe that the Israelis are in a position to start winding their operations down, and that's what the administration expects to happen in short order. Have the Israelis conveyed that they are going to wind down operations, and can you define short order? What type of timeline are you looking for? Well, I will let them convey uh, what they feel they accomplished. Our view is we believe the Israelis have achieved significant military objectives uh, that they laid out to achieve uh, in relation to protecting their people, and to responding to the uh, thousands of rocket attacks from Hamas. Um, and so that's why, in part, that we feel uh, they are in a position to start winding their operation down. Uh, we continue to believe uh, that they have a right to defend themselves, but this is uh, where we see, again, our evolution of what the readouts that we're sending, of what we're conveying, what the President's conveying directly to the Prime Minister, is also a reflection of what we're seeing on the ground and what our officials who are working in close and lockstep with both Israeli officials, Palestinians, others are also seeing on the ground. So it's a reflection of all of that. But in terms of their assessment uh, of that, I, I will certainly leave that to them. And obviously our objective is to work toward a ceasefire. So there has not been a message from the Israelis to the administration that they are going to I'm not going down. to read out their messages from them. They can do that. I can read out what we are conveying to them. But how is the president not publicly calling for an immediate rather than a path to a ceasefire. You know, the de-escalation, not right now, stop this. What, what is the thinking behind that? I think the president's been clear. He wants to see a wind down of this, uh, of the violence, an end to the violence, and uh, a winding of their operations down as quickly as possible and lead to a ceasefire as quickly as possible. So I don't think he's attempting to mince words there and what he uh, hopes the outcome to be. Are there any consequences if Israel does not show progress toward that de-escalation, toward the path to a ceasefire? Our focus is on getting to a path to a ceasefire and bringing an end to the violence, to the suffering of the Israeli people, the Palestinian people, many people in the region. So I'm not going to get ahead of that to predict consequences. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Jenny. Sorry, go ahead. 
Senator Capito uh, said that she expects a counteroffer from the White House tomorrow. Can you confirm this is the deadline? Is there a deadline for tomorrow to make a counteroffer? We do expect. We had constructive conversations at a staff level uh, on Tuesday uh, on the Hill with Senator Capito, other ranking members with Steve Borchetti and Louisa Terrell, uh, Secretary Buttigieg, Secretary Raimondo, uh, and we expect those conversations to continue tomorrow. And then on another piece of legislation um, on the Hill that I know is a priority of yours, uh, the Endless Frontier Act, um, obviously you guys care a lot about yeah, semiconductors. Um, it seems like the negotiations have hit a couple hiccups, which you know is kind of normal. Um, but at what point is the White House getting involved in smoothing this over? Because I know, you know this was supposed to go on a faster track than your infrastructure proposal. Are you guys involved at all through your ledger affairs team? Um, or do you leave this all to Senator Schumer? And We're absolutely involved. We're strong supporters of the Endless Frontiers Act, as was evidenced by the um, statement of administration policy we put out earlier this week, and uh, we are hopeful and looking forward to signing it into law. And are you behind the scenes pushing to resolve the hiccups that are currently holding up? Our point? legislative team is closely involved with members um, and with uh, their staff on moving it forward. One last one, also on infrastructure. Um, if you can uh, lay out what the White House um, and the President himself is doing um, to urge uh, congressional Democrats to support his proposed tax increase increases. Uh, what to pro to pro I'm sorry, say that one more time. What the to President, what the President and your legislative team is, uh, how that outreach, what type of outreach you're doing with Hill Democrats on the proposed tax increase. Well, I would say the vast majority of Hill Democrats support raising taxes on uh, the highest income and also on corporations, as do the vast majority of Americans. So I would flip that question around, and really the question we're posing out there is if you don't want to pay for these proposals, these historic investments in infrastructure, these investments in uh, ensuring that uh, we are making our workforce more competitive and rebuilding uh, roads, rails, and bridges around the country, investing in broadband, if you don't want to do it by raising taxes on the top 1%, going back to the tax rates of President George W. Bush, raising them on corporations, many of whom never didn't pay any taxes in the last few years, what's your alternative? That's really the question we're asking. Uh, most people in the country and in, and in the Democratic caucus support raising taxes on the highest income and um, on corporations. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, Jen. On the infrastructure, given that there were staff-level talks earlier in the week, mm -hmm. can you say whether, just give us a, an idea if the, if the ball has been moved forward, has there been any, you know, movement on maybe the pay-fors? You just, you know, talked about the importance of, of the president's proposal and asking Republicans to submit their own. Did they do that? Is there, I mean, was how constructive was this and how much did the ball move from where it had been prior to Tuesday? I wish there was a daily ball moving monitor. You guys would probably love that, too. Uh, doesn't always work that way, as you know, with these negotiations and discussions with members and their staff. Uh, our team felt they were constructive conversations. There obviously needed needs to be follow-up, as we fully expected, because negotiations and compromise require many, many uh, conversations, sometimes back and forth proposals. We expect those to continue tomorrow, those discussions, uh, and we're looking forward to that. But I, I'm not going to be evaluating kind of the, the percentage of progress in, after each meeting. Do you expect those talks with Republicans to continue beyond tomorrow? Or there are some Democrats on the we'll Hill talking about, talking about it's time to just move on. Look, the President's view and uh, the view of senior members of this administration is that uh, he was elected. The American people expect him to work with members of both parties, to attempt to work with members of both parties to get business done on their behalf. And he's doing exactly that. Uh, so we're looking forward to constructive conversations tomorrow. We'll have to evaluate uh, how those go and what the next step is. But I'm not going to get ahead of the conversations tomorrow. One on the 1-6 commission and the, you know, that hangs sure. in the balance in the Senate. Um, you said just a few minutes ago that this is a matter of preserving our democracy. Uh, if it's that important, is this an issue where the president is going to be lobbying members, lobby, picking up the phone, calling Republicans, and perhaps speaking to the country, uh, you know, using the bully pulpit to push lawmakers on this, or is he going to sort of save save those calls for, for other issues? Well, he's made clear what his view is on the uh, mark on our democracy that was January 6th, and he's conveyed that clearly publicly on numerous occasions. I don't think there's any secret about where he stands on the commission. We also put out a statement 
on an administration policy on this as well just a couple of days ago. And certainly, as he's having discussions with members, if appropriate, uh, he raises a number of issues. But uh, I think it was important for us to convey where we stand in our view that this is an issue, a commission, that shouldn't be viewed through a partisan lens. And we don't think the American people view it that way either. But Jen, thanks. The um, Texas governor yesterday signed an abortion law that bans the procedure of sixteen. Yeah. What specifically is the White House looking to do? Uh, what specific steps will the White House take to try and protect abortion access? Well, first, as you noted, but for others who haven't followed this as closely, this is the most restrictive measure yet in the nation, uh, and the most restrictive a recent assault on women's fundamental rights under Roe v. Wade. And critical rights continue to come under withering and extreme attack around the country. President and Vice President are devoted to ensuring that every American has access to health care. Now more than ever, he continues to support the robust agenda he put forward during the campaign to protect women's fundamental rights, including by codifying Roe v. Wade. Obviously, there are some actions that will be through legal processes and through the courts. Uh, those are decisions for the Department of Justice and others to make, but certainly the President uh, supports and believes we should codify Roe v. Wade, and that is uh, his view, uh, regardless of these backward-looking uh, steps uh, that are being taken in states in, by states in the country. And then both Pfizer and Moderna CEOs are saying COVID boosters uh, you know, could be needed as early as September. How is the administration preparing for that in terms of contracts with companies? What would that mean for efforts to send shots overseas? Sure. Well, first, um, we would wait for the FDA uh, to certainly make that uh, official recommendation to the American public. I will say that when we purchased uh, such a large quantity of uh, supply and doses, we were also factoring in a range of contingencies, uh, and that includes that potential. We don't know if that will be what the FDA concludes, uh, but we plan for that. And in addition to the supply that we've already ordered, we're going to be focused on continuing to work with manufacturers to increase uh, supply uh, global, uh, globally, of course, through our own manufacturing facilities, and we'll continue to build from the supply we've already ordered. One more really quickly. Um, last week, 25 members of Congress sent the President a letter asking him to appoint a special envoy to Northern Ireland, wondering if he has any plans to do that, and if so, what the timing would be. Uh, we did see that letter. Certainly, um, that decision and uh, uh, recommendation would probably be made by the State Department in terms of what is needed on the ground. Um, so I don't have any personnel announcements to convey or a timeline for that. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, will President Biden press uh, President Moon to join the Indo-Pacific Quad? And if South Korea is not a part of the Quad, does that kind of leave a big hole in your hopes of containing China? Well, uh, the Quad has four members, so not to be too mathematical about it, but um, <laughs> I would say that um, that already exists. Um, I would say that South Korea is um, – an incredibly important partner to the United States, hence the President is having one of his first bilats in person with uh, the President of South Korea, and I think that sends a clear message. Now, in terms of uh, working with South Korea to address uh, regional security issues or strategic issues in the region, uh, certainly there'll be an opportunity to talk about that. We, we expect that North Korea will be a central topic of the discussion, of course, tomorrow, but they also will uh, discuss uh, climate. They will also discuss uh, economic partnership. Uh, they will also discuss China, and those will all be a part of this uh, bilateral conversation and meeting tomorrow. In terms of like a full-fledged membership, I know you have to rename it. Um, is that going to come up? Is, that, is the president going to push for that? Look, I, I think that uh, South Koreans may bring up a range of issues, uh, of course, but I, I'm just framing for you what we expect the focus of the discussions to be about. And I would also convey that there are a range of forums and formats through the international um, you know, community uh, where the U.S. works with a range of countries where we work with, we may work with, of course, Japan and South Korea on a range of issues. That There's been history of that through trilateral cooperation, as you know. Uh, there are uh, a range of um, international organizations that we are a part of and South Korea is also a part of. So I don't have anything to predict or anticipate in terms of a change in membership of the Quad, but I would just note that the fact that they are here tomorrow, that it's a full bilateral program, uh, makes clear the importance of that strategic relationship. President Biden ruled out um, the possibility of face-to-face -face meeting with Kim Jong-un of the North. I mean, is that even a possibility? I don't expect that to be top on his agenda. Well, I think one 
it's one of the reasons that we want to be absolutely clear uh, that what uh, additional enforcement from the IRS would be focused on are people who are not paying their fair share. That is not hardworking middle-class Americans who are, uh, you know, working hard, paying taxes, putting food on the table. Uh, there are uh, a range of other entities that are uh, less likely to pay their fair share of taxes. So um, we will be, um, you know, continue to be absolutely clear about that. Lower middle-class Americans are, for the most part across the board, compliant with their tax uh, obligations. Uh, but there are cases where corporations are not paying their fair share, and they're able to play by their own rules, paying half or less than what they owe. And, you know, that's really what the focus is. Go ahead, Jeff. Thank you, Jen. Um, on taxes again, the president yeah. has called on the wealthy to pay their fair share. I'm wondering if the president would like to see reforms to the way that S-corporations are treated, given that the Obama administration uh, said that those corporate structures could sometimes be used as loopholes, and yet President Biden, between 2017 and 2020, used an S-corporation, um, according to his tax returns and reporting in Bloomberg, to avoid paying nearly $500,000 in self-employment taxes. Well, I will say first that he received no income from uh, Celtic Capri in 2020, which is the S-corp, and uh, it's dormant, and uh, I will not be engaging in any business other than to receive potential royalties, which would relate to books he has already written. And of course, as you know, you only know about this because the president released his tax returns, which uh, <laughs> has long been history, uh, historic precedent, even if it wasn't over the last several years. Uh, in terms of additional tax reform proposals, I don't have any to announce for you today. I would note that the president paid a higher rate than most high-income individuals and most corporations around the country. And then another one um, with regards to the, the question of, of what's happening currently in the Middle East. I know that you've touched on, um, you know, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, but, you know, there was reporting um, earlier that uh, the leader of the Iranian um, Revolutionary Guard said that the rocket attacks from Palestine hitting Israel was a sign of, quote, a new Palestine. Um, I'm wondering if, if that type of rhetoric coming out of Iran has any effect on uh, the president's eagerness to, to rejoin uh, the treaty the Iran nuclear agreement and, and sort of if there is an interplay between those two spheres? Well, I think it's important to be very clear. Iran, uh, is, uh, they're bad actors, and they're bad actors in the region. Uh, and uh, we that that is very clear. That is our position. However, we believe, the president believes, that it is in the best interest of the United States and in the best interest of countries in the region uh, to have more visibility into Iran's uh, nuclear capabilities and to prevent them from acquiring a nuclear weapon. More on, a, on the colonial pipeline. Yes. Um, has the president been briefed on any intelligence suggesting that the dark side hacking group, which claimed responsibility, operates under the indirect supervision of any Russian intelligence services? Is there any relationship that we have seen? I think the president was clear last week in what the intelligence assessment is about the Russian government's uh, involvement or knowledge of uh, the hacking. Uh, at the same time, they are a criminal entity that uh, is uh, in, on Russian soil, and therefore they have a responsibility. Sure, go ahead. Uh, hi. I just wanted to go back to Israel really quick. So yesterday, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez accused Israel of using American weapons to target media outlets, schools, hospitals, other sites. The other day, Congresswoman Omar called the Israeli Prime Minister an ethno-nationalist. I know you've uh, talked about the White House's message to Democrats, but does the president specifically denounce these comments? I think we have a responsibility here to speak about this as, it, as, it, as the issue that it is, which is a conflict that is killing people uh, in a region and, and, uh, and our efforts to bring that to an end. The president doesn't see this through the prism of domestic politics. Um, he sees this through the prism of what role the United States can play as a leader in the global community to, uh, to engage in quiet, intensive diplomacy to bring an end to the suffering and the tragedy on the ground. Just to follow up on that, so I, of course this isn't just a domestic issue, but there is infighting between Democrats, and one of President Biden's big messages is unity. So what is being done to unify his own party on this issue, and how is this infighting not hurting that message of unity? Well, here's where there is agreement. Uh, we all want to see an end to the conflict on the ground. 
We all want to see an end to the suffering for Palestinian people, for the Israeli people. Uh, there's a disagreement on tactics. There's a disagreement on some aspects of how we engage. Uh, but we all agree uh, that we want to end the suffering, and that is certainly a unifying message. Go ahead in the back. Thanks, Jen. I want to pick up on a couple things that my colleagues have asked, infrastructure and taxes. Sure. First, though, on infrastructure. Has any progress been made? I know you say that the conversations have been constructive, the talks are going to keep on going, but has any progress been made through the lens of the White House? Well, here's what's progress. Uh, we have Democrats and Republicans, the ranking members of, uh, of a range of important committees in the Senate, having discussions with members of our senior White House team, a Democratic administration, about the agree an agreement that we need to invest in our nation's infrastructure. Are we on the same page on every component of how it should be paid for or on the numbers? No. Do we know it will have a successful outcome? Uh, no, we don't know that yet because this is democracy in action. This is compromise. This is negotiations. And it looks foreign because we haven't seen this in some time, but it's ongoing. So we're not going to give a day-by-day -day grade. It's not particularly constructive to do that. Is it a challenge at this point, the top-line figure or the pay-for? The top-line figure or the pay-for? Yeah, what's a bigger, what's bigger lift at this point? Look, I think... Uh, I'm not going to rank order them, but I will say that it's not been a secret that, that the largest area of disagreement is pay-fors. And obviously, if you have a higher top-line number, you need more pay-fors. doesn't require a mathematician for that. And then, uh, on taxes, the, with the guidelines that the Treasury Department uh, put out today as it relates to the IRS, Yeah. what is the argument that you would make that the inflows and outflows of someone's account should be monitored by the IRS, and since the since the Treasury Department says this, those who make under four hundred thousand aren't going to be audited any more than they have been in the past. Essentially, are you creating a two-tier audit system? Those who make more than four hundred thousand and those who make less. Well, I would say that lower and middle-income Americans who are working hard, making getting their paychecks are not uh, typically the issue at, at, uh, at hand here. And what the uh, tax compliance report conveyed today is that, um, uh, or confirmed today, I should say, is that it's past time to reform our broken tax system, that teachers, firefighters, nurses, and other hardworking Americans, uh, they report their income, they pay required taxes. Wealthiest Americans and corporations, because they often operate under different tax systems, it already is a system that is living in two Americas, they are able to pay lower tax rates. That's not fair. That's basically what the president is conveying. To the person who does well, pays their taxes, and just doesn't want the government seeing the outflows and inflows they pay by the book, and they say, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is right. But well, again, I, I think what our focus is on here is ensuring that uh, any American pays the taxes that they are owed. And if they are paying the taxes that they are owed, then uh, they have little to worry about. But there's no question that, uh, given that for the last 10 years, the IRS has re been repeatedly underfunded, currently has 20,000 fewer staff, including fewer enforcement staff than it did a decade ago, uh, that uh, proposals like the President's proposal to increase uh, ten, a 10% increase in funding for the IRS that would largely be used to strengthen enforcement on wealthy and corporate tax filers and help ensure those at the top pay their fair share is uh, certainly something that I think the vast majority of Americans would feel is fair and effective. Go ahead. Thank you, Jen. Uh, I'm going to bring you back to the Middle East sure. questions. Uh, the UN chief just said, and I'm quoting him, if there is uh, hell on earth, it is the life of Palestinian children in Gaza. So far, 65 children have been killed, 40 women. Uh, in total, 230 civilians, 50,000 people have been displaced. Since this administration put human rights protection as a forefront of your foreign policy, why can you do more to protect the life of Palestinian children and exert more pressure on one of your closest allies, which is Israel, to avoid killing children? Well, I would say that what our effort has been focused on uh, is conveying uh, behind the scenes that certainly while Israel has a right to defend itself, that uh, it is time now to bring an end to this conflict, that there has been too much suffering, too much tragedy, every life lost, every one of these children uh, who has lost their life, every family that has had to mourn the life of a, a loved one is, is certainly too many. We have certainly had a shift in our approach as it relates to our engagement uh, with the Palestinians from the last administration, including uh, the fact that the, um, the consulate was closed 
uh, they had ended uh, assistance to UNRWA during the last administration, and they did not have that open line of communication engagement. They'd also ended humanitarian assistance and security assistance to the Palestinians, which we have resumed. So we have certainly taken a different approach, uh, and we believe our, our role here can be playing a role behind the scenes, uh, conveying that it's time to bring an end to the conflict. Colonel Iran, uh, talks from Vienna is indicating that by next round, uh, Iran might come into compliance and the U.S. might lift the sanctions. Do you consider that June 18th, which is the day of the Iranian election and is the end of Iran commitment to the IEA, is the deadline for the White House to try to achieve something? Well, I'm not going to set new deadlines today. I'm sure that won't surprise you. Uh, there are certainly political factors uh, that are factors uh, for uh, for countries like Iran that are key parties in these discussions and negotiations. Our, of course, goal is to mutually return to compliance with the JCPOA, and we would be prepared to lift the sanctions necessary for our JCPOA compliance only if Iran were prepared to return its nuclear program to its JCPOA status. We will see where we get, but that is our bottom line. Thanks, everyone.